Okay, so it's a huge, huge subject this evening. It's marriage and holy orders. And these are called sacraments of vocation. Who knows what a vocation is? What's a vocation? Everybody thinks it's a everybody thinks it's a job. Calling? Do you remember it is, it's a calling. Do you ever do you, do, last time I watched television, which has been many years, um, they used to have these television ads for like vocational tech, learn learn computer repair in six months or less, call one eight hundred three three three, whatever. Um and people, also people think of vocations. They think it's a, what job you do. In a spiritual context, it is a calling. Calling. Who's the call from? God. God. Who's the call to? The person. You. Yeah. And what's the call about? To orders or marriage. Uh, well, the, the simple. The, we're going to say there's two sacraments: marriage and holy orders. But everyone is called by God to Himself. God is calling everyone to himself, okay? So is there anyone in the world who does not have a vocation, a calling? Nobody, okay. And this is important to understand. There are only two sacraments that are associated with the vocation. Everybody's called by God to God. He's calling everybody, and the call is ultimately a call to heaven. Um, But not everybody is going to have their call accompanied by a vocation. Some people won't get married. Are they still called to God? Yes. Some people won't become priests or bishops or deacons. Are they still called by God? Yes. Um, But there are two sacraments of vocation, and that's what I want to go over uh, here this evening. But I do think it's very important to understand that even there's lots of people that aren't going to be called to any either of these sacraments. Um, One of the things that I will bring up this evening is that if you get married, and one of the people in the marriage is not baptized, it's actually not a sacrament. Are they still called to God? Yes. Okay. So there's two sacraments of vocation, but please don't think that, you know, if somebody falls through the cracks, that somehow they're not called to God, because they are. Okay. Um, okay. So I used to start. I used to start with uh, uh, holy orders first, because that's what everybody was interested in. But then I ran out of time, so now I start with matrimony first. And a lot of people, you know, they they already know enough about matrimony. But let's just go through what we understand about matrimony. And the simplest way to put it is with this following quotation, which is, comes from our Code of Canon Law, the definition of matrimony, all right? The marriage covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership for the whole of life is by nature ordered towards the well-being of spouses and the procreation and education of children. Jesus Christ himself raised this covenant between baptized persons to the dignity of a sacrament. That's a loaded statement, okay? Every word is deliberate, and every word has a purpose. Let's, go, let's start going through it word by word. First of all, a covenant. Once again, I can't remember what I have and have not said to you. Have I ever differentiated between a covenant and a contract? No? no okay. Um, and it's not entirely clear in everyone's mind, but let's, let's just clarify it, okay? Uh, a contract is an agreement between persons whose terms are written up by those persons. We had a contract to build this church. And we had our job, namely to write them checks, and they had their job, namely to put up walls and roofs and all the rest. Okay. It's, a, it's an agreement. We can change the agreement. Um, we can amend the agreement. 
Uh, but a covenant is something entirely different. A covenant is an agreement, and it can be between persons, but the terms and conditions are written by God. You can't change the agreement. God made a covenant with Abraham. Okay? God made a covenant with, uh, with us in Christ. The terms and conditions are written by God. We can't change those terms and conditions. There's another difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract is an exchange of goods. This is mine, and that is yours. Okay? A covenant is an exchange of persons. I am yours, and you are mine. What did God say to Abraham? I will be your God, and you will be my people. Okay? So, a con- so a contract is an exchange of property, but, in a co- but a covenant is an exchange of persons. So the first thing to understand about matrimony is it's a covenant, all right? It's a covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves. Now, once upon a time, to tell you that it was between a man and a woman was like telling you that the circle is round. Um, I, you'd laugh at me for even raising the subject. Those days are over. I can't just breeze past this. So let's talk about this for just a moment. Why is it between a man and a woman? And by the way, as Catholics, as Christians, there's no other way, okay? There, I, there's no such thing as a marriage between two men, two women, or any other, um, any other combination. Why is that? It's because of the nature of what matrimony is, okay? Let's look at the difference between maleness and femaleness. What I want to say is they are your very identity, God made you a man or a woman. And, and you are. And that is to say, the level of your soul. I will never understand a woman. And you, that might sound like a joke or something you can chuckle at, but the truth is also the reverse. A woman will never understand a man, ever. They can go a long way in understanding, but they will always be a mystery. And a woman will always be a mystery to a man. Why? Because you are made, created differently. And you're different in your soul. The two are designed to be different. And that's a good thing. It's not one is superior and the other is inferior, as the world would like to have us fight one against the other. It's that they're complementary. We ha- we're strong at what, something that the other, a man is strong at something that a woman is not. A woman is strong in things that a man is not. And we need each other. And we need men to be men. And we need women to be women. And the world that tries to make maleness and femaleness into a homogenous gray equality of absolute sameness is robbing the world of a greatly good thing. Okay? So we have, to, we have to understand that. And in matrimony, um, that complementarity is physical, it's psychological, and it's spiritual. Which, by the way, is why there's only two. Today, they talk about gay marriage. Tomorrow, they're going to talk about plural marriage. Because if it's not between a man and a woman, um, there's no reason to stop it too. Why two? Because the man and the woman are perfect complementariness to each other. Okay, that's that's the re- that's the reason why. Um, and God said, in the divine image, He made them, male and female. He made them. There's something of the wholeness of who we are in maleness and femaleness. In fact, a little interesting little side note, I had a friend from China, and he told me about the word in Chinese, uh, by which you take the word for man and you put it next to the word for woman, and you get the word for good. Very interesting. 
Okay, well, that's going to be a separate subject. And uh, I am so tight on time, I can't take this. We, I could talk to you about it, but I can't talk to you about it now, okay? Um, 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 it's a big subject, an important subject, but I can't, I, I, we'd run out of time if I, took, if I went off that course right now. I have to talk to you about matrimony. Okay. <clears throat> um, um, uh, so where were we? Okay, between a man and a woman. Established between themselves. This is one sacrament that a priest does not celebrate, that a minister does not celebrate. Who celebrates the sacrament? The man and the woman themselves. Now, when I say Mass, who celebrates the sacrament? I do. When I do a baptism, who celebrates the sacrament? I do. When I hear a confession, who celebrates the sacrament? I do. When I witness a wedding, who celebrates the sacrament? The man and the woman themselves celebrate it. I'm just a witness. That's all I am. That's the role of the priest. Okay? Um, He's a, a witness of, of God, ultimately, and saying that's a very important part of it. Um, in, but, but, but the man and the woman themselves establish a partnership for the whole of life, which we'll get to in just a second, ordered towards the well-being of spouses, the procreation and education of children. And lastly, Christ himself raised this covenant between baptized persons, I already mentioned that, to the dignity of a sacrament. Okay? Um, so for life... I think I've already gone over all the rest. For life, uh, we would say as Catholics that divorce is a legal proceeding. It doesn't end a marriage. We say in the marriage ceremony, till death do you part. What God has joined, let, let no one tear asunder. Okay, so we would say that divorce, uh, well, the state recognizes it, the state no longer recognizes it, but that's all we would look at it on as Catholics. It's just a legal proceeding, um, just like any other legal proceeding. It exists in the eyes of the state, but it doesn't exist in, in, in anyone else's eyes. And it has a twofold purpose, okay? The well-being of spouses and the procreation and education of children. Let's talk about that for just a moment. The well-being of spouses. It's not good for the man to be alone, God said in the Garden of Eden, okay? Um, it's ordered towards sanctifying a soul, the purpose of matrimony, as again, it's a call, it's a vocation. Who's the call from? God. God. Who's the call to? People. You. What's the call about? Getting you to heaven. The purpose of matrimony is to get you to heaven. So I'll, have a, I'll talk to people who want to get married and I'll ask, why do you want to get married? And they'll, they'll tell me a number of, you know, basically emotional statements. And then I'll kind of have to bring them back down to earth. And I'll be like, well, see, here's the actual deal. God has called you together because he wants you to get to heaven. And the purpose of sanctifying your soul is to help you to get past thinking about yourself. That's ultimately what sanctification is. You know, what is sanctification? It's not just racking up rosaries and masses and novenas and our fathers. And Ultimately, the work of sanctification is a work of getting over yourself. You lose yourself in somebody else. And how do you do that? Well, you put yourself in a circumstance in which you've got to think about the good of somebody else. That could go off on this for a long, for a long, long time, but, you know, marriage kind of begins as like a baited hook. It's really wonderful. But, you know, after a while, um, you've got to start thinking about what can I do for you and how can I exist to make you happy? And then along come children, and they don't give you the option. Right? You've got, you got to be thinking about them. And it's that forgetting about yourself and thinking about the others. That's the sanctification of your soul, Okay. 
Um, the procreation of children. Notice I didn't say the reproduction. Reproduction is what happens when you use a Xerox machine. Why do we say procreation? Yeah, here's something. I mean, I could go off on this for a long, long time, but again, it's so there's so much to get through this evening. When a new soul comes into existence, something which never existed before has come into existence that will exist forever. That's why it's procreation. The act of creation is going on, right? And who's the creator? God's the only creator. But what does he do? He delegates his creation to human instruments. He delegates his creation to human instruments. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what's, that's exactly what, uh, what, so it's the procreation and education of children. And God gives these little souls to parents like a blank slate. And they will answer to God for what they've done with those kids. And it's the God's given right to a parent to be the first educators of their children in the ways of the faith. Not the only educators of their children in the ways of the faith, because, you know, the church factors in. Um, sometimes you'll get people that want to have their kid baptized and the kid confirmed or something like that, and they'll be like, it's okay. I've taught them myself. I declare that they're ready. Um, and, you know, I thank them for their opinion. But the fact is, they're not the only educators. They're the first educators, the most important educators, but not the only educators. Okay? So the education of children. It's the, and we say that, we say that children are the supreme blessing of marriage. Why is that? Why do we say that it's the supreme blessing of marriage? Because of all the things that could possibly happen in marriage, nothing that God does will ever be more spectacular than bringing a new soul into existence and giving you as a parent the right to shape and form and teach and guide as God himself would do, but he's delegated that task to you. And it's incredible responsibility and incredible honor, okay? So, um, um, so Jesus Christ raised this covenant between baptized persons. I've already mentioned about, about how, you know, if you're not baptized, it's actually... So here's a question for you. Um, uh, a, a Catholic and a Jew married at the high altar of St. Peter's in Vatican by the Pope, sacrament or non-sacrament? A sacrament. It's, she's not been baptized. It's not a sacrament if she's not been baptized. No, she's. They, they both. Because here's the thing. What's the first sacrament you receive? Baptism. Baptism. Who gives each other the sacrament of matrimony? Each other. They give to each other, right? That's why it's not a sacrament unless they've both been baptized. The first sacrament is always baptism. So you can't receive a sacrament until you've first been initiated by baptism. So that's why. So um, any time you get somebody unbaptized is not a sacrament. Uh, But in every single culture, there's always been matrimony. You know what this is really interesting? I mean, you, you get explorers crossing the ocean in the 16th century, and they land on the beaches of Mexico, and they go up and they see the Aztec culture and the Tlaxteca culture, and you get people crossing the North America for the first time in the railroads in the 1870s, and they come across the Crow and the Sioux and the Arapaho, and they, and they all have marriage. <clears throat> and in every case, it's seen as something holy and ratified before God. Isn't that interesting? It's something almost natural that tells us this is sacred. So, marriage has existed in every culture, right? Right. 
But I just said that Jesus raises the dignity of a sacrament. That's where it's important to differentiate between a sacramental and a non-sacramental marriage. Everything that I'm going to talk about this evening about matrimony is a sacramental marriage. Not every marriage is a sacrament. Um, but when it is a sacrament, it follows all the, all the following you know, uh, 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 descriptions. Um, now here's another interesting thing. If you remember what I said before, if you heard me we talk about sacraments before, every sacrament has form and matter? Yes. Um, do you remember what that means? What is the matter of baptism? Material, the water. What's the matter of confirmation? Oil. Oil. What's the matter of Eucharist? Bread and wine. Um, what's the form of baptism? I just, I'll just tell you, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I can't botch that, right? Or, or we haven't had a baptism. What's the form of, I mean, you don't, maybe not off the top of your head, we'll get to it next week, the form of Eucharist? This is my body, this is my blood. I can't botch that, or we haven't had the Mass. Um, what's the form of matrimony? It's the exchange of vows. Okay. It's the exchange of vows in the presence of a duly delegated minister of the church and in the presence of two witnesses. Right? If it's not done in the presence of two witnesses, something's lacking. If it's not done in the presence of a minister of the church, something's lacking. Okay? That's the form. But here's what throws everybody for a loop. What's the matter? Two people. Everybody thinks it's the ring. The matter that makes matrimony a sacrament is intercourse. Oh. Like I said, it throws everybody for a loop. Let's talk about why. And this, by the way, is the foundation of sexual morality. This is the foundation of our sexual morality. People think the Catholic Church thinks sex is evil. We think sex is holy, sacred. Okay? That's a great, great misunderstanding. So in, in the vows, what does a man and a woman say to one another? Effectively, they say, you and you alone for the rest of my life. Now, I ask you to think about the next statement intuitively. In intercourse, isn't that what a man and woman effectively say to one another? I know our society's botched it. We, ha we basically turn it into a form of close affection or even recreation. For some people, it's a form of employment, okay? But why? You just you have to come and mull over this because you have to get through lots of layers of societal garbage. Why is it that people instinctively frown on, say, a promiscuous woman or a promiscuous man? A girl has a reputation for sleeping around. A guy has a reputation for sleeping around. Why do people frown on it? Isn't it because somewhere deep down in the marrow of our bones we know that's not right? And it's not just a societal taboo. And that's what I'm trying to tell you here. This is something God wrote into the marrow of our bones. And, I'm, and we're teaching it as a church that when people engage in intercourse, they're actually swearing to one another, I'm yours and you're mine. Now, the reason why it's a sin to take it outside of marriage is because you're swearing with your body something that you're not, you haven't sworn with your soul. And what happens as a consequence of intercourse? Well, lots of times, nature takes its course and there comes along a little kid. And what do kids need? They need stable moms and dads. That's what they need. Can you see the pattern here? Can you see the design? That's what we teach. Can you see how that makes sense? 
it's hard to get it through because society says, no, 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 it's just about recreation or it's just about closeness or just... No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's marriage vows. That's what we're saying. And if you can see that, I hope you can see something that's greatly, greatly good. Okay? So that's the form and the matter of matrimony. And it establishes people in a public state. Now, <clears throat> the further along society keeps on progressing, the harder it is to make this point. But you shouldn't just live together before you're married. Okay? Two people living together, society has a right to know that you know, they're, they're sworn together and that this is permanent and society needs that permanence. And you know, I could get, we could go off for a half an hour about what happens to a society when families aren't stable. But it's public. I had a man once, I was talking about uh, annulments, which is a totally different subject. And he said, this is just between me and God. And I said, it's actually not just between you and God. You swore in the presence of all your family and friends these vows. Um, the moment you did that, it became public. Okay? It, it's not just between you and God. It, it affects what, what people know. And that's why the annulment, which is a totally separate subject, is, is, is um, not a, a private little thing done, done uh, under the table. It, you know, it's, it's, pe- people can read it. It can be made known. It can be made public. Okay. Um, so that's the definition of matrimony. Now let's just go through some of its criteria. When it's a sacrament, what we believe is that it's an image on earth of a reality in heaven. Okay? The union between Christ and his church. That's what we say is symbolized. Where did we get that from? St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's where we got that from. Okay? So everything that you're going to say about God's union with us as a people that becomes the real model of matrimony. We could say, well, we take our image of matrimony and we kind of project that up to God and we kind of post, paste that onto God and that's where we got this understanding. And what I'm saying is the reverse is the case. God in his eternal plan had an idea of what matrimony should be. And if you know your Bible, you know this um, passage where the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, can a man divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? Moses said that we could as long as we had a decree of divorce. And Jesus says it was never intended to be like that from the beginning. From the beginning, he made the male and female. And what God joined together, no one should tear asunder. Okay? So why, why do we say that? Because that's the unity between God and his people. Did I ever tell you about the last line of the book of uh, Revelation and how it's a marriage? Uh, did I ever tell you about the difference between a comedy and a tragedy? Real, real briefly. Um, in Greek theater, a comedy is any play that ends in a marriage. That's the definition of a comedy. A tragedy is any play that ends with everybody dead on the floor. If you could travel back in time to ancient Athens and watch a play, every play would end one of those two ways. Well, the Bible ends with a marriage, so by definition, the Bible's a comedy. Okay? Um, so what we're saying is somehow, mystically, God's going to have this union with his people that's going to be like the real marriage. And on earth, there's an image of that, okay? That's what we say everything that we say about matrimony for. That's why we say it's faithful, okay? Um, um, That's why we say it's permanent. That's why we say it's life-giving. Now, if two people want to come to me and they want to be married, and they say, I don't really intend this to be permanent, like, it might not work out, I can't do their wedding. 
Why? Because the definition of the wedding isn't something, it's a covenant, remember? If two people say, uh, um, well, you know, I'm really not sure I can be faithful, and, and I understand that she might not be faithful either, and we're, we're cool with that. I can't do their wedding. Why? Because the definition of a marriage doesn't come from me. Only once in my life I've ever had this, two people who are otherwise of childbearing age who just never want to have kids. Now, if two people come to me, and I do this all the time, a wedding, and they can't have kids because biology has taken its course, they can still be married. Okay? But if they can and don't want to, I actually can't do their wedding. Because, again, it's part of the definition. I didn't come up with it. The union between Christ and his church is faithful, life-giving, and permanent. So too matrimony. It's all those three things. And by the way, you might not be aware, but when pu- if you could push comes to shove, get, say, a Jew or a Muslim um, to ask, must marriage always be monogamous? They would say no. It's actually just an internalization of kind of a, 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 a true, a, an essentially Christian principle that marriage is between one man and one woman and not one man and several women. That, by the way, there's never been a society in history in which there's been a marriage between two men or between two women. That has never existed until just now. Okay. Um, but, the idea that, but the idea that it's one man and one woman is a Christian idea. Um, and who knows, maybe a society progresses, that'll be something else that happens, but we will never change that because we can't. So one thing that is very important, the exchange of consent makes the marriage. You can't force it. It can't be impeded. Uh, it can't be done under constraint. It has to be free. Um, um, and the willingness to enter into this in the presence of two witnesses, okay, so could two people get me married on a deserted island just sharing their vows with each other? No. It has to be with between two witnesses. If you're a Catholic, it has to be for a duly delegated minister of the church. It can be a priest. It can be a deacon. It can be anybody. Like you can, and this has happened before, many, plenty of times. If you approach the bishop and you say, you know, I want to be married in the congregational church, you know, because um, it's really important to my spouse because this is his family and this is... You can approach the bishop and you can get permission for the, for, the, for the minister of the congregational church to be the duly delegated minister of the church, and it's a wedding in the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. You can do that. You have, to approach the, you have to approach him and ask, okay? But, um, but, it, but for a Catholic, this is like a little... A little hook. Um, it has to be before somebody who's been dele- designated by the church. We've made that basically part of the minimum requirements. Okay. Um, now I've got lots of things here that make a marriage invalid, um, um, and I, I'll leave those there for you. I, I, different times I've gone over these in, 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 in greater in, in greater uh, degree. The most important ones um, are for us our previous our, our, our previous marriage. Um, uh, and any of those refusals to have children, refusal of fidelity, refusal uh, of any uh, um, uh, um, of a willingness to enter into what I've just gotten finished saying. Um, the most common one is previous marriage. Unless some authority in the church has somehow decided that a sacrament, by the way, an annulment never says that a marriage didn't happen. It doesn't say that. An annulment says it was never a sacrament. That's what it says. And that's a separate subject, um, and could be and could be an entirely separate subject. But it would, it would take an hour to talk about it, and we just don't have time. Um, uh, but that's the most common one: is, is previous is, is a previous union. 
that would invalidate a marriage. Okay, effects of matrimony. Um, it perfects their charity. We actually say that matrimony itself is a source of grace. Okay? Strengthens their unity. Helps them to grow in holiness. Gives them the grace to welcome and raise children. And this is the only sacrament, apart from, say, baptism, that actually helps you in your daily living. Because families are just that important. Okay? So, um, holy orders. Move on to holy orders. Now, that's a quickie short view of matrimony. Holy orders. Um, does not exist for the sanctification of the recipient. It exists for the sanctification of everybody else through the recipient. It's a very strange gift, Holy Orders is. It's not a gift for me. It is a gift for you through me. Okay? So let's talk about this. Holy Orders is something that's, that's, that's greatly misunderstood. Remember how I said that God kind of delegates his, his activity to a parent and giving them a new soul? delegates his activity to a parent bringing a new soul into existence? Well, God does lots of delegating. And we believe that when it comes to the giving of his grace, he's delegated that through holy orders. Okay? So that's, that's my job. Um, and it's a sacrament by which the mission of Christ himself was entrusted to the apostles and that it might continue until the end of time. All right? that's, that's holy orders. As I said, God delegates he is teaching his grace. Um, the word orders it doesn't mean like, you know, orders like I'll have a Big Mac and fries to go. Um, it's not an order, uh, but it means, comes from the word ordo, meaning a group or a body, especially a governing body. And that's exactly what the, the, the order of bishops would be or the order of presbyters. But let's talk about this. What, what's a priest? A priest is a go-between. He's a mediator between God and man, who brings about a union between God and man by means of prayer and sacrifice. They've existed all through the Bible. The first time a priest ever shows up in the Bible is Genesis. The priest's name is Melchizedek. Ever heard that said in the Mass before? Who is Melchizedek? He's this mysterious character, shows up to Abraham back in the book of Genesis, and he offers a sacrifice, it says, of bread and wine. No one knows where he comes from, no one knows where he went, but he's called a priest of God Most High. Jesus Christ is called a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because he comes from God and he goes back to God. But uh, there were, uh, believe it or not, there were Old Testament priests. Everybody's heard of Jewish rabbis. What really throws people is there's such a thing as a Jewish priest. The first priest of Judaism was Moses. Moses was the go-between. When the people had a problem, they went to Moses. Right? Um, Moses went to God. God went from God spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to the people. Moses was a go-between. The descendants of Moses were priests. In Judaism, you weren't ordained a priest, you were born a priest. And it's really interesting, they did a study on all these Jewish people with the last name of Khan or Cohen, which is just a Hebrew word that means priest, that's all it means. And they all had a similar gene. They were all descended from some similar ancestor. And that's what they've always believed. Descended from, and you'll see this, you know, in the New Testament. I could go off on and on about that, but um, but but the very first one was Moses, and people don't realize that there's actually to this day Jewish priests. And in fact, if you go to a synagogue, the rabbi, which just means teacher, rabbi gets up and gives a blessing at the end of the synagogue, and before the rabbi gives the blessing, all these people get up and walk out, and they're not trying to beat the traffic. They're priests. 
They're all the Cohens who are there assembled. And in all justice, they're the ones that have the authority to give the blessings. So they get up and they walk out. But these guys are, you know, running a bagel shop on the corner of Delancey Street um, and, and West 42nd. Um, um, but, they're, but they're the ones that are born, born the priests. So what we say as Catholics is that there's one priest and only one. Who's the go-between between God and man who brought about a union between God and man by means of prayer and sacrifice? Jesus, Jesus is the one who did that. He's God and man. So that's why, you ever read the letter to the Hebrews? The whole letter to the Hebrews, half the letter to the Hebrews, it's all about the fact that Jesus is the only priest. Okay? And we say Jesus is the only, it's kind of a trick question. If I ask somebody, how many priests are there? The truth is there's only one. And when we talk about holy orders, this is what we're saying. That a, a man who's been ordained to the priesthood is actually participating in Jesus' own priesthood. That's what we say is actually going on. So when he celebrates the Eucharist, who's celebrating the Eucharist? Jesus is. When he performs a baptism, who's performing the baptism? Jesus is doing the baptism. Um, confirmation. All, 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 the, all these others. Okay. Um, so that, that's, that's the thing. There's only one priest. And what we say is that by this sacrament, you're united with Christ in such a deep way, and it's a total mystery. I don't understand it. But that Jesus actually works through you. He acts in the name of Jesus himself. So you ever notice this? The priest will say Mass, and he doesn't say, this is Jesus' body, which is given up for you. This is my body. And the my is not the priest speaking at that moment. It's actually Jesus speaking. Or we could say the priest speaking in the person of Jesus. Or you go to confession. The priest doesn't say, and Jesus absolves you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God forgives you. Go in peace. He says, I absolve you. Now, what we say as Catholics is that that sacrament of holy orders allows that priest to work in the person of Christ. That's why he can do that and not shoot blanks. There's only one priest, and he's working through this guy. You can understand it at the natural level. You can understand how he works through parents, procreating new life. What I want to try to ask you to try to take that idea and leap it up to a supernatural level, that he's working through this priest, okay? That's what's actually going on in holy orders. We say he did that first for the apostles, but not just for them, but that it's been passed on down through all the ages so that everyone could receive Jesus' own. And we'll talk about this next one. We'll talk about the Eucharist, what the, what the Mass actually is, and what you're actually doing when you gather for Mass. I'll give you a preview of it right now. I'll just complete the thought. When you gather for Mass, you're actually present at the sacrifice of Calvary. Almost as if a past event has been made a present reality. Jesus isn't crucified again. Okay, We're not repeating it. It only happened once. But there's this old Negro spiritual that says, were you there when you crucified my Lord? If you have a proper understanding of what we mean when we say we go to Mass, you can say, actually, I, spiritually, mystically, I was. Because that's what the Mass is. That's what every Mass is. And, the, and, and that's what's happening. The pre, we actually believe that God is working through this instrument. Okay? So the apostles knew they were empowered to pass on authority that they received from Christ, uh, and they did pass on the authority through this ordination ceremony, the prayer and the imposition of hands, which is what they've always done. So when I was ordained a priest, um, the form was a certain prayer that was said, and the matter was the bishop laid his hands on my head. And that's the way it's always been. 
And when I showed up here at St. Jude, everybody said, hooray, is our new priest. And nobody voted for me. And nobody hired me. And they all said, hooray, it's a new priest. And last year we got a new bishop. And everybody said, yeah, a new bishop, hooray. Nobody interviewed for him. Nobody sent out a want ad. Why? You know, you go to, you go to Protestant churches and they don't like their minister. They have a vote of no confidence. As a Catholic, people say, boy, that's a great idea. <laughs> I, think I, want to, I think I want that rule here in my church. I'd like to try to swap them out for somebody for somebody else, right? But we can't do that. Why? Because we say that the authority didn't come from the community, did it? We said the authority came from Christ. This is holy orders, okay? The sacramental power to act in the person of Christ goes beyond election or delegation by a community. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit that allows the exercise of a sacred power, which is the power of Christ himself. It's not a function you know, like if I'm not there for Mass, one of you guys can get up and say it. I mean, you know, we're all believers here. No. It's a union with the person of Christ, which allows that ordained minister to act in the person of Christ. Make sense? Okay. Form and matter, prayer and the imposition of hands. That's the form and matter. Now, it gets kind of complicated here. Um, and it would take me a long time to try to explain this. It does exist in three degrees. All three of these degrees are present in the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, so you, you see it even before we're done writing the Bible. Bishop, priest, and deacon. They're different. A bishop and a priest are both priests. A deacon is not a priest. A deacon is a servant. Okay? They're, they're, they're fundamentally different. A bishop has the fullness of the priesthood. A priest does not have the fullness of the priesthood. Okay? I am a co-worker with my bishop. The bishop has a certain authority over me. He can tell me that I can no longer give sermons, and I can't, because I don't have his blessing. He can tell me I can no longer say Mass, and I can't, because I don't have his blessing. Now, to split hairs, if I got up there and said Mass, would the Mass still be a valid Mass? It would. It would be unlawful, it'd be a sin, I'd be breaking the rules, but it would, because I'm ordained a priest, you can't take that away. You can't be unordained. Kind of like you can't be unbaptized. Once you're baptized, you're baptized forever. Once you're ordained, you're ordained forever. You, even if you laicize a guy and, you, and he wears a, a business suit and he works for Procter & Gamble or whatever he might do after he's done being a priest, he's still a priest. And would you believe it? In, a, in an emergency, he can still hear a confession. In an emergency, he can still do an anointing. In an emergency, he can still... And there's priests in our parish. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but I know that they're priests because they've told me and they left the priesthood. Um, in an emergency, they could act up because you can never be unordained. Okay, But I'm not... I don't have the fullness of the priesthood. The bishop can tell me that I can't. And for those of you who are Catholic and you're getting confirmed, you don't have to write to the bishop and ask for his permission to do your confirmation because the bishop is the one who's supposed to confirm a Catholic. He can give me the permission to do it, but I can't do it without his permission. Okay? I can't do it without his permission. So the bishop has the fullness of the priesthood. He's the pastor of this whole area called the diocese. I'm the pastor here, and I operate in his good graces, but he has a certain authority over me. Um, and I know of one priest, a local, believe it or not, and the bishop took his authority away. He was doing something wrong. Um, I'll just satisfy your curiosity. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was preaching things that were wrong every single week. The bishop told him to cease and desist. He said, you know, my conscience commands me. The bishop said, okay, you can't preach anymore. All you can do is visit the hospital. And he never preached again. 
Um, and, and he can do that, all right? Because he has the full... So I don't have the fullness of the priesthood. Um, just to satisfy your, your curiosity, I do have a real authority over this place, St. Jude. The bishop has given me that authority. The church has given me that authority. Um, and it's really kind of interesting the way the church's rules work. The bishop alone can't yank me. He, uh, once, once you're established as a pastor... Um, you got to have a real clear cause to yank a guy. You can't just kind of do it on a whim. Um, but people say, well, what's a pope? A pope is a bishop. That's all he is. He's just a bishop who's a successor in the authority of St. Peter. Okay? Um, sacramentally speaking, he's just a bishop. The pope has the authority that Peter had over the apostles. The pope is head of the church in the way that Peter was head of the apostles. Okay? But it's not like a new sacrament. It's not like a new holy orders. People say, what's a cardinal? Um, a cardinal was something that was created by the church to help try to get politics out of the church, believe it or not. And back in the day, uh, um, in the 11th and 12th centuries, uh, there was all this influence of kings and trying to get the next pope to be favorable to them. And the pope at the time said, I'm going to rework things. I'm going to create a brand new system. I'm going to create a council of advisors. And they're going to be the ones who choose, not you, thank you very much. And it's it's worked ever since. They could do away with it. They probably never would. As a thousand years of tradition at this point, it would really upset people. But what's a cardinal? The word comes from the word hinge. The word in Latin for hinge is cardo. These are really important bishops. They're hinge bishops. They wore red because it was supposed to be a symbol of their willingness to shed their blood for Christ. Then they sent explorers across the ocean and they explored uh, the winters of Virginia and they found this bird that was really bright red and had a pointy top. It almost looked like a bishop wearing a hat. And they said, hey, it's a cardinal. So the bishop is, the, the bird is named after the bishop, by the way, because um, the bird looks like a little bishop, a little red guy with a pointy hat. Um, um, but, but that's all a cardinal is, okay? Um, a priest celebrates the sacraments. A priest preaches the word. A priest, priest carries on the, pat, the sanctification of the people. Um... Only a priest will celebrate Eucharist, confirmation, anointing of the sick. Um, a deacon can witness a wedding. But did I just get finished saying that anybody can witness a wedding with the delegation of the church? Yes. A deacon can do a baptism. But anybody can do a baptism. Did you know that? I think I mentioned that in the, when we talked about baptism. Um, in a case of an emergency, anybody can do a baptism. So a priest alone can celebrate Mass. See how there's a difference between a, bishop, a, a, a priest and a deacon? A deacon is, the ordination of a deacon is different. It's a role of service, but it's not the priesthood. Okay? Um, so, uh, um, uh, as I said, you can never be unordained. Um, um, and then there's a couple things here that I, that I threw in. And I don't know if you need to go over this in all this great detail. You can look at it on your own, but there's a couple of really big kind of culturally taboo subjects. One of them is celibacy, and the other one is women priests. Okay, And real, real briefly, and you can read more about it yourself, um, but first of all, celibacy is a discipline of the church. It didn't always exist. And in fact, doesn't even exist in its entirety right now. Our parish has Father Peter, who many people might may or may not know, is married. He came over from the Anglican Church, and when you come over from the Anglican Church and become a Catholic, if you've got a wife, you don't have to, you know, 
sell shoes or whatever it is. You can, you can work in the priesthood. You're going to get paid what one of us guys get paid, which is peanuts and popcorn. Um, you got to figure out some other way to pay your bills, but you don't have to. You're allowed to continue ministering um, in the church. But but celibacy, people misunderstand. They think that it's functional. They think, well, you know, the priest doesn't take a wife because you know he takes those emergency calls. And then I say, gosh, I know a lot of guys on Capitol Hill are working at the Pentagon. They're working hours way worse than I am, and they got a wife and kids, so that's not the reason. Um, well, you know, you can do more if you're not married. Well, gosh, that's cruel. That's like telling a kid, I got a great idea, kids, we're going to do away with weekends so you can go to school more because, you know, if I just take away your free time. No, that's not the reason. This really sounds, might sound strange, but we actually say that it's actually a grace and a gift that certain people have, and not all of them are priests, certain people have, by which um, you can quite happily and quite fruitfully make your way through life and you don't really need the company of a spouse. And why would anybody do that? Well, here's a simple reason, and I hope this makes sense. It makes it easier to cling to God with an undivided heart. It doesn't mean you're holier. But allow me to tell you a little anecdote that hopefully makes this clear. Um, when I talk to very devout ladies, uh, um, they'll very often... So I've had this many, many times say to me, you know, I, gosh, I wish I could go on retreat, and I, I wish I could go to Mass every morning, but I got all these kids, and I wish I could have more time for prayer, and I'd go to the church, and gosh, I wish I could do all these, but I got, I got to do this laundry, and I got to fold these socks, and I got these kids, got to get to school and soccer, and gosh, I wish. And I think to myself, mm-hmm, it's easier for me that I don't have all that. I can do all that. That's the per- and so what we're saying is actually it's your identity and in the in the in the Catholic Church one of the things that we say is that the God calls to the priesthood those who already have that identity so it's not like it's the admission ticket to the priesthood you got to bite the bullet and give up a, a wife um, it's also not like the priest is made out of magic fairy dust and it's just isn't difficult for him I can't tell you how difficult it is but I can do it. Um, because that's long and short. You can look at all the history of it and stuff like that. The other one is women priests. And this is one that I think um, people might not, people might not. We do not say the church will not ordain women. What we say is the church cannot ordain women. It's a very different statement. If the church will not ordain women, we are committing a sin every single day. It's just like saying we won't baptize a woman or won't give them confirmation or won't give them communion. What we're saying is this isn't something we invented. This is something God invented. And we're trying to be faithful to it. That's what we're saying. It's the most important point to say about women priests. Um, um, another important point to say is that, and this might really throw people for a loop, there isn't really a theological argument for women priests. What there is is a sociological argument for it. What people actually say is, well, you know, I've read Paul and I've read, seen the history of the church and you know, they're wrong here and they're wrong there and they're wrong there and this is why there should be women priests and you know, let me argue it with theology. They don't argue it with theology. They argue it with sociology. They should say it's not fair. Um, the people want it. Um, and I really think it's best answered with a sociological argument. Can I really throw you for a loop and tell you that the people don't want women priests? There are some people who do. Most of them are from Western Europe and North America. But Western Europe and North America are precisely where the church is dying. You want to know where it's vibrant? Africa, South America, 
uh, Central America. It's, it's blossoming and growing like, like mad. Um, I've had this conversation with, because uh, I've been to Africa and I've, and I've been to Central America and I've had these conversations. And it's not that we're enlightened and they're unenlightened. It's they have an understanding of something we don't. They don't want it. If imposed it on them, it would be this small little dying Western fringe of Catholicism that's being re-evangelized by the, by, the, by the new world, by the way, imposing on everybody else this thing that they don't want. That's the sociological argument against it. Um, but uh, um, another thing people say, well, you know, historically Jesus should have, he just, you know, he, he was bound by the culture of the time. Actually, Jesus bucked every bit of the culture of the time. And if we're going to say that he's God, he acted in an absolute sovereign manner in everything he did, including hanging out with prostitutes. Which which he he palled around with and other things that upset people. Um, historically speaking, it's interesting that the, the, his, the history would have made it very easy for the church to ordain women and in fact favorable because everywhere we went, when we evangelized all across Europe and North Africa, we ran into culture after culture after culture that had women priests. You go into Greece, what do you find? Priestesses of Aphrodite. You go into Egypt, what do you find? Priestesses of Ra. You go into Germany, what do you find? You find a whole class of warrior priestesses, um, which, by the way, would probably make a really great series on HBO. H- it really sounds pretty cool, warrior priestess. Um, but so um, I really, I really, it's just, anyway. Um, and honestly, the, but this most important thing to say is not that the church won't. It's that we can't. Okay, and I got all the details in there. So real briefly, that's marriage and holy orders.